Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. Carrie Newhoff here, and usually I'm joined by David Kinneman, um, but this is a bit of a different edition of Church Pulse Weekly. So some very sad news to share for those of you who may not have heard, but David lost his uh, wife last Wednesday to cancer. She's been battling cancer for 41 months, uh, brain cancer, and uh, they had known for a little while that... Uh, that uh, the diagnosis was terminal. And then last Wednesday, actually rather suddenly, seemed to be a pretty normal day. Um, Jill had some special challenges and and passed away last Wednesday night. So I'm here on behalf of David. And uh, I just know this is this is the part I love about being the church and about leadership and uh, about friendship is that we can come around our friends at a season like this. And so, like many of you, I've been praying for David. I've been praying for Jill while she was ill. And now we're praying for the kids as they get ready to prepare this week the memorial service. Yeah, we're just, we're just with them. We're praying for them. And uh, I can't imagine the grief of losing a spouse. Uh, some of you know that pain. Um, and you can empathize with David and with his children in a very special way. But David, I just want you to know we love you. Uh, we're praying for you. We're with you. Uh, we will carry the load for a little while while you grieve and you heal and you spend time with your children and you reflect and you pray. And uh, we're just so grateful for you, so grateful for your family. So if you would this week, just remember David in your prayers. I remember his children, Emily, Annika, and Zach. And uh, if you'd remember his wider family as well. So uh, what we thought we would do um, when we learned of Jill's passing, is just changed direction on this podcast for a little while. So if you're a regular uh, listener or viewer, you know that this is something you participate in, and we are going to continue to do polling on a weekly basis to find out what's changing. And we'll be bringing some of those statistics to you in the weeks and months ahead. But in the meantime, what we thought we would do is just do a little a reflection and retrospective of where we have been over the last seven months on Church Pulse Weekly. So uh, we started Church Pulse Weekly, David, myself, and our partners at Glue back in March when we saw the world change and we realized that for the first time ever in the history of the church, we had the ability to track what was happening in real time. Normally, Barna, who's been polling for 30 years, the Barna Company, you know, we do a few major polls a year and kind of take the temperature. But now, thanks to the technology powered by Glue, we were able to do weekly real-time polling. And uh, we were able to track several trends. A few that have been common themes is, you know, we had this initial surge. Everybody moved online. By Easter, everyone said, wow, our church is growing. I think 59% of churches at peak said that they were reaching more people online than they were in person. And then, of course, we learned how to measure a bit differently, and there was a summer slump. And what's happened over the last few months is that about 17% of churches are reporting growth, um, both financially and in terms of audience. And then the vast majority, very similar to historic patterns, uh, continue to see plateaued or perhaps in some cases declining attendance. We've also been really, really 
dialed in on the emotional and mental health of pastors. And um, it's tough. Uh, I mean, on a recent episode, David shared that uh, the indices around mental health and mental anxiety are 10x what they normally are. And they have historic data for years on the mental and emotional health of pastors. And so you're facing a lot of stress. You're facing unprecedented change. And so what I did for this episode is I went back over our entire catalog of episodes. We're dozens in now, and we've had the privilege of talking to dozens of leaders, thought leaders, practitioners about what they're experiencing. And so what we're going to bring you is like a recap, a highlight reel of the last seven months. And we put it together in a way that it covers a lot of the major themes that we've been covering on Church Pulse Weekly, but it's a little bit of a primer And so as you go into 2021, I hope you will find this episode helpful, uh, not only to bring you some of the best moments, and it was hard to pick. I mean, there were so many great interviews, and obviously you can access that archive anytime you want, but I would love for you just to kind of listen through, and we're going to cover like the disruption. What does it actually mean? We're going to talk about racial justice. That's the, as David often would say, Uh, the disruption within the disruption. Then we're going to talk about personal health, emotional health, spiritual health. And then finally, we're going to talk about the future. So I'm just going to play little clips of some of the highlights. And you're going to hear from Mark Batterson, Dave Ferguson, Leslie Mack, Nona Jones, Haley Vachuris, Andy Stanley, Albert Tate, Derwin Gray. Who else are we going to hear from? Levi and Jenny Lusco in this episode, Pete Scazzaro, Henry Cloud, John Tyson, Andy Crouch, and Mark Sayers. Okay. So all that like in one hour-ish broadcast. So if you're watching us uh, on YouTube or online, or if you're listening via podcast, we're really grateful that you've joined us. And um, just one more thing, David will be back on the show. It'll be a little while, um, but I'm going to anchor things for a little while. We'll bring in a few guests here and there and some other uh, Barna people to help with us. And in the meantime, here's what I really like you to do before we really jump into this week's episode. I would love for you to take a moment to pray for David. I'm going to do that. And then also um, there are details, including um, an opportunity for you to give. As you know, there are medical bills and there's funeral costs, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you can learn a lot more at Pray for Jill. So if you just go to PrayForJill.com, that's where you can learn more about the journey that David's been through and also have an opportunity to contribute in whatever way uh, that you can. But uh, I would like to pray uh, for David and the family. And then we'll jump into the conversation. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for every church leader who's gathered here today. And I thank you so much for uh, David. And we just stand with our brother right now in a season of unimaginable grief, having lost um, the love of his youth, his bride, and uh, mother of their children. Lord, we just thank you for Jill's life. And, um, And I pray you would be with David and Emily and Annika and Zach. And I ask that you would just embrace them with a love that defies logic, um, that is bigger than words, that is deeper than we know, and a love that really, really lets them know that they have a Heavenly Father who, who cares for them and who loves them, that this is not the end, uh, that you are a God who understands lament and grief and suffering, as well as a God who leads us to resurrection. And so we embrace the Kinnaman family today, and we ask that you would be with them in their sorrow, and we ask that as friends and colleagues, we would be able to come alongside them and 
and to bless them in the season of deep grief. And we pray for the comfort and the peace of your Holy Spirit for each of them. Lord, words aren't enough. So speak to them in the way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining me with that prayer. And, um, you know, as a lot of you are experiencing too, we have this big thing that's happening in the world. Um, You know, we're recording this or releasing it the day before the U.S. election. Who knows what's going to happen with that? And uh, just these cascading crises, as Pete Scazzaro referred to them on our podcast. And you also have your personal trauma as well. So we hope that this is an opportunity uh, for you to grow, uh, for you to refocus, for you to find healing, and for you to find help and hope. And so we're going to start the conversation today with Mark Batterson. David and I interviewed Mark and we asked him, you know, what is changing? And he had some interesting things to say about the weekend gathering. So let's begin with Mark Batterson. I think if your church totally revolves around a weekend gathering, I mean, then you got to do everything within your power to get that gathering back. But, but in my mind, a church that stays within its four walls isn't a church at all. And so I think there are a couple of things that, that God is doing right now, maybe three or four things that I'm pretty sure of. Um, and I think one of those is God is decentralizing his church. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the priesthood of believers. It's the company of prophets. And uh, th- there's a beautiful picture of this in Numbers chapter 11 where uh, you know, God shows up and, and it's, it's been my template really since uh, for the past six months that, you know, they, they go out to the tent of meeting, but Eldad and Medad uh, stay in the camp. And uh, of course, God pours out his spirit in a profound way. It's a prototype of Pentecost, actually, I think. And, uh, and then something fascinating happens. Even though Eldad and Medad stay in the camp, God still pours out his spirit on them. In other words, God sets up a structure in a system in which to do his work. And then God moves outside the system and structure that he set up. Yeah, what Mark had to say is really interesting. You know, (laughs) I think a lot of the, the recurring themes on Church Pulse Weekly have been around this idea of everything was geared toward a weekend gathering pre COVID, which, which is great but maybe this is an opportunity to respond. And then there's the whole question of return to church. And we could have, well, we have spent whole episodes talking about return to church, but we sat down with Dave Ferguson and I asked him the question I've asked a lot of leaders, is this an interruption or a disruption? But then he had something really interesting to say about green light, yellow light, and red light people. So listen in, here's Dave Ferguson. Yeah, it, there's no doubt about it. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, it's, this is totally a disruption. Um, I'm kind of looking at the world, and I don't know if I made this or maybe maybe I stole maybe I stole it from you. You can tell me. <laughs> um, I kind of think the world is in in COVID, and now post COVID is going to be like green light people, yellow light people, red light people. Oh, that's not me. No, go ahead. I'd love to know more. Yeah, and I think I think you got the red light people who during COVID are going like, no, you know what? I'm I'm going to play this really uh, safe because I'm at risk. And then I think you have yellow light people who are kind of, well, I'll venture out, but I'm going to be cautious. And then you got green light people who are like, uh, I'm not even sure if this is real. <laughs> right. But I think what's happened is I think we've been in it long enough 
that now it started a behavior pattern. So some of those red light people they're going like, you know what? I kind of like staying at home. It's like it, the work from home is a luxury. And I like my Peloton in the basement better than going to the gym. And so they're going to stay, they're going to stay like as red light people as behavior, not just because of COVID. And I think some of the yellow light people are going to be like, um, I've been spending more time with my neighbors, more time with my small group. You know, I think I, I kind of like this closer community. I'm going to stick closer to home. I'm going to continue to be a yellow light pe- person, even into the future. And then green light people will continue to be, yeah, hey, let, I want the big crowd. I want everybody. And I think for a lot of churches, like the kind of churches that we've been a part of, we've almost only focused on green light people. And I think the future, and we're going to have to program for it, is for yellow light people, those people who are looking for smaller gatherings, which is where I think watch parties, micro churches are going to thrive, and red light people, which is where your online uh, totally works for them. And candidly, I think a lot of people are going to, it's going to be more fluid. They're going to flow from one where, you know, I'm gone last week like I was in Wisconsin. So I watched community online from Wisconsin. Uh, the next week, you know, if our facilities are back open, then I'm back in the building. And then the next mm-hmm. week, oh, my small group wants to have a watch party. So we do it in our backyard and they'll flow from, re- you know, from, from red to green to yellow. I think that's going to be a really enduring and interesting theme as we move forward. And I kind of put myself in the yellow light category. And some of you are like, no, I'm green light 100%. But it's really interesting. I think some of these patterns, right? Is this a medical disruption? Yeah. Is it a cultural acceleration and disruption? Yeah. And is it in fact also a generational disruption where you see different generations behaving one way to the other? I think the answer is yes. So uh, one of the things we decided to do was sit down with some content creators. And Leslie Mack uh, works with Orange. She was when we interviewed her just recently with Life Church, And she talked about four different kinds of content you can produce for online. thought it was really helpful. Here's what Leslie Mack had to say. I would say that for us, one way that we shifted our thinking is to understand that typically churches and student ministries kind of make one type of content, right? It's spiritual content and the meat of it is a message, right? Um, But we've started thinking about there's actually four types of content, right? There's candy, right? It's a dopamine hit. It's a meme. It's it's something that gets you like feeling great, whatever that is. It's quick. You can bite-size all of that. The second one is a vitamin, right? That's kind of our message. It has long-term sustaining good if you take it for a long term, right? It builds you up. It fortifies you over time. Um, The second one is medicine, right? That's when you need to address a very critical need head on. Um, For us, that looks like we have what's called a family meeting where we just know that whatever the communicator is saying tonight is probably going to hit pretty hard or be pretty direct. Um, And so then the last one is if you think if you abuse medicine and so that ultimately becomes a poison, right? And so we're trying to always watch out for is any of our content poison. It never is, but that, like, I think as believers, it can be easy to create content that maybe doesn't all the way point back to Jesus or point to something that does point to Jesus. Um, And so for us, just thinking between candy, vitamin, medicine, or is this becoming a poison? So just looking through that filter. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, a lot lot of the stuff that I actually uh, encounter as a researcher, you know, so I've spent uh, 25 years here at Barna, the last 15 really focusing on the spiritual lives of, of millennials and Gen Z. And, you know, it's uh, it's more than six out of 10 Amer- young, young adults who walk away from either the church or from their faith. 
um, you know, having grown up Christian. And a lot of that poison, I love that you're sort of calling that out because a lot of what we hear from people is like, hey, you know, I was emotionally manipulated to become a Christian or I was, you know, like it didn't like the, the thinness of the teaching is a, another kind of poison. If we don't give young people the depth of a real Christian robust faith, they, it, it you know, it, it, it runs thin. So I love hearing, hearing how you're doing that. T- talk a little bit about how you try to identify, you know, what that, what a message might look like that's that has a, a poison in it or you know like what how do you guys go through the process of thinking about those four phases but especially the area of, of like how how uh, we can actually undo faith i actually think by the way just a quick note there's a lot of places in scripture where jesus talks about you know it'd be better for a millstone to be put around our neck than for us to mislead someone right like that's a, a, a harsh warning for those of us that are communicators or you know the sort of the message to the pharisees of the day the religious leaders so you know you'll 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 unpack all this stuff that it might be you might think is really good but you won't lift a finger to help lift the burden of self-righteous you know sort of wrong-minded christianity and so i'd I'd love to hear you just sort of talk a little about how you guys are both uh, both trying to to to, you know measure out that kind of collateral damage we can do in ministry it's a heavy topic but i'd love to hear you guys weigh in on that that's good yeah for us um we do a lot of what it's called a thrashing i know it sounds brutal sometimes it is but if there's going to be a message that's going to go out Um, We definitely get everyone in the room, the right voices in the room, and everyone has an equal playing field seat at the table and kind of just tear it apart from every possible angle to make sure that ultimately it is pointing people to Jesus. It is teaching us to die to ourselves, not just do what feels good, that kind of thing. So for us, it's the content process of saying, hey, we're thinking about putting this out. What's the outcome we want? If this is just candy, great. Post the meme. It's hilarious. It's great. You know, if this is a vitamin, it may be you know, a 10 minute, 15 minute message. And, you know, the truth is there. And if it's medicine, then we we might have to address some things like, okay, too many people are talking during the worship portion, or perhaps we're talking about we've taught on this for all year and no one's really getting it. So that's kind of how we do our family meetings, our medicine. And then again, just making sure that we're, we're aware how much the New Testament warns against falling away, being led astray, that that whole thing. And so always looking out for that. So when you think about the content that you want to produce, you also have to think beyond just streaming. And a few voices today say that more powerfully or succinctly than Nona Jones. Nona works with Facebook. She's also a local church pastor. And this is what she had to say about the best practices beyond just streaming your weekend services. Uh, I've seen several churches that have established um, prayer lines, which may not have pre- previously dis- existed because people went to the church and they, you know, put a prayer card in the bucket. Uh, but I think that's so important because that provides a touch point where people can actually hear themselves being prayed for. Um, and so I've really been inspired by that. Um, and I think just using it as an opportunity to to leverage your leaders um, so that they can keep in touch with people throughout the week. That has been huge. Don't wait for the weekend. Keep in touch during the week. Any tips on streaming? Um, because I know that all the pastors are like, yeah, but we're still going to stream. Any thoughts on how to make that less of a monologue and more of a dialogue? Absolutely. So what my husband and I have been doing, I've been encouraging others to do, is to answer questions real time and, and mm-hmm. actually invite people to ask questions, invite people to comment. Um, there are some people who are pre-recording and they're setting it up as a premiere and letting it go. But if you can go live, go live because then you can say, Hey, Sally, Hey, John, Hey, Becky, whoever you see, come on, acknowledge them. People need that acknowledgement right now uh, more than anything. 
Sometimes one of the challenges can be that you, you know, you hear from all these mega church and large church pastors and Haley Vaturis has served with some of the best Bayside Church and Saddleback. But I asked her specifically, what about small churches? What can small and normal sized churches do in terms of being able to reach their community online? And here's what Haley Vaturis had to say. You know, the funniest thing that we found at Bayside, and we have churches of all sizes. We're even launching a church in Orange County right now. So crazy times during COVID, um, church planting, but that's fun. So we found that people love seeing the church be the church. And one of our main things at Bayside is to reach wide, teach deep, and unleash compassion. So showing how we're unleashing compassion in our local communities, um, locally, statewide and worldwide has actually been a big win for our church because it's built trust with our family members of Bayside and then with our community as well. And so churches of any any size can show that they did a canned food drive, can show that they did a clothing drive, can show um, that they went out into the community and cared for the homeless. It doesn't take a mega church to do that. A church of any size can do that and you can capture it all on your phone. It's never been easier. So I would just encourage churches, like, be yourself, go be the church in your community and show that on your social channels. We're going to wrap up this section of the podcast on the nature of the disruption itself with an excerpt from our conversation with Andy Stanley. And uh, Andy is one of the best in the world, I think, at tackling criticism. He's had his share in leadership. When he announced back in July that they were not going to be reopening for in-person services until 2021, it sounded like no, that wasn't even on the radar. I think David said to to Andy, it's like, yeah, when you announced that, like 0% or 1% of people said that they weren't going to meet until 2021. So it was pace setting. And you can imagine, I mean, you've been dealing with this as a church leader, you get a lot of pushback. So I asked Andy, how do you handle the pushback? And what do you do when, when you get a lot of people who disagree with the decision? Because this is something you're all facing right now. I loved Andy's answer. Um, we uh, surveyed our folks. And of course, we got some immediate feedback from, our, from insiders. And there was about 15% of people who, would I, who I would say were committed to one of our churches who were not happy. They weren't happy about the decision to shut down for the summer. Or when I say shut down, to suspend weekend worship services for the summer. And then when we said, hey, for the rest of the year, um, I got voicemail, letters, email, people putting letters in my mailbox. Um, and so here's what I did. And this is my habit. And Diane knows um, whenever I get a complaint that she hands to me, she has already gone ahead and looked up a cell phone number. I do not write people. I don't respond with email. I call people. So I call just about every single person um, who in our church, who's, you know, I, we went online. These are people who are committed. They've led small groups. They love our church, but they are upset. And you will not be surprised to know, and I've shared this with our church. I wouldn't share anything here. I haven't shared with our church. 100% of the negatives, 100% of the negatives, they weren't, oh, I miss the church so much and I, I can't wait. And I'm so upset that I can't gather with Christians on Sunday to worship God. There was zero of that. 100% of the pushback was political in nature. We bought into this democratic lie. We bought into the, you know, the scamdemic. Um, and uh, these were actually friendly conversations. I mean, first of all, they weren't even sure it was me. I had to convince them, no, this is really Andy. I got your email. I actually read it. Um, and then they would tell me how much they love the church and how it changed their life. So we'd go through all those wonderful things. <laughs> and then we would kind of get into the nitty gritty 
And honestly, these are people who like, I've never, I'm not wearing a mask. I've not quarantined one single day. I don't know anybody who's gotten sick. Um, this is just people trying to shut down the church. So we have those folks in our churches and I talk to them and we've had interesting conversations. And I, you know, some of them were saying we're leaving the church. And I would say, well, this is actually a great time to leave the church because we're not meeting and the churches you probably would want to go to, they're not meeting either. Then we would laugh, you know, and hopefully nobody left the church. I don't want anybody to leave the church. So that was, um, that wasn't exactly surprising once I got into it, but I was not anticipating that. Again, I just was excited about doing the right thing for our community. And, you know, when you do something very, very big and different, everybody stops and looks, and then you have to decide what are we going to do with this attention? And can we leverage it in such a way that increases our influence in the community and our community knows, hey, this church is for our community. I'll tell you where I got consistently good feedback was from the medical community. I heard from people literally all over the country who said, Andy, I don't go to your church or Andy, I've read one of your books. I watch you on Sunday or Andy, you don't know me, but my wife's a nurse. I'm a, I'm a nurse and my, my wife's a, a, a doctor, you know, um, you've made the right decision. And in some cases they, they were quick to say, I am a far, I'm a very right wing Republican. I want you to know that, but yeah, I feel like you made the right decision because you know, people sense that this has become politicized like everything has. So that's been an interesting thing to navigate, but I've had some fascinating conversations along the way. So, you know, through everything that we've shared so far that um, it's not going back to the way it was. And I think the future we're all looking at is hybrid church. And uh, Barna has a brand new resource they just released. If you haven't checked it out yet, I would encourage you to do that. You can go to barna.com forward slash digital church. And it's all kinds of resources, data on how to do a hybrid church model better, right? Because we're going to do in person, but we're also going to be doing online indefinitely. We talked to numerous people. uh, And again, not everybody fit into a recap episode who are like, yep, first time online ever. Holly Wagner talked about that. We had a conversation recently with the people from Hillside Church. And I'll tell you, a lot of you are online for the first time. And so Barna's committed to producing resources to help you. So make sure you check that out at barna.com forward slash digital church. One of the other major themes of 2020 has been racial justice. And we had numerous conversations on that, but I want to highlight two. And so we interviewed Nicole Martin and Albert Tate. And Albert really, I mean, it was a powerful interview with both of them, but Albert had something to say about the dynamic that he faces as an African-American pastor that really gripped my heart. And I want to share that with you now. It's not even our natural proclivity to empathize with the burden. It's our natural proclivity proclivity to say, that's not real. Mm. So the amount Mm. of times that I've had to defend my tears Mm. to my white siblings is crushing. Mm. The amount of times that I've had to position myself based on the comfort of whites. Mm. So listen to this, hear this. Um, When Nicole talks about whiteness and our inability to see it, Carrie, Dave, here's the game changer. If we don't get this, everything is a waste of time. Mm. If if white siblings cannot see whiteness, Mm -hmm. and that's not saying your your whiteness, they're saying whiteness as a system that we all live within that we all need to be delivered from. 
that even my white siblings. Mm-hmm. And here's here's what I'm talking about. So white is absolutely normalized as the standard, mm-hmm. and we're trained to see everything else as other. All right. Okay. So my my all Bible college, all Bible college, I went through systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And then if I had an extracurricular course called black theology, yeah. <laughs> what that said to me was that systematic theology is white theology. That's right. Because it consisted it consisted of all white theologians theologians, all white authors, all white contributors. And if I wanted to get into black perspective, I had to go study black theology or Latino theology. Let me come out of that. Let me go a little, let me go a little, little lower hanging fruit. My iPhone right now, it just got emojis that existed of people of color. I've been using a white thumb for years. (laughs) I just got a thumb that was made for a person of color. Do you know why that took so long? Because white people, there you go, Nicole, (laughs) white people made the iPhone. So when white people made the iPhone, when they were creating systems, they created images that looked like them. Mm. It was designed for them. It was not designed for me. I just heard T.D. Jakes talk about this. He said the iPhone, the facial recognition, you can Google this. There are whole things about this facial recognition. All the facial recognition studies and research was done on white faces. So it had problems recognizing black faces. So if the iPhone was built that way, can we talk about how America was built? Yes. It was not built for us. Mm. It was the the systems weren't designed for us. They were designed for whites, particularly uh, majority for white men, for for the profile Mm. of white men. So when America, when the format was designed, there were elements i.e. the Constitution, that great sacred document that we hold so dearly, well, it acknowledges us as three-fifths a person. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't even acknowledge our full humanity. So there's a system that's built, and we're trying to now reconfigure a system that wasn't built on us, and we all need to be free from it. Like my sister was saying, you want, man, can you imagine going through a homiletics class preaching and not one black voice contributing to that class? Mm. Not one black preacher. Do y'all know how great... Yeah. Some of the best preaching in the history of our country are black preachers and going through a homiletical class, not being exposed to black preaching. That that's a disservice to my white siblings. You just (laughs) miss up. Your preacher just could have went to go into a whole nother level. So understanding that system. So that way we can call it down so we can all be free so that we might all benefit from the fullness of the family of God. We're not benefiting from those voices, but Y'all, until we see that and until we can call that down, we're just putting band-aids on something. So if you're interested in hearing more of those episodes, of course, that's all available in the archive, either at churchpulseweekly.com or, of course, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. But uh, that was such a powerful episode with Nicole Martin and Albert Tate that uh, I featured it over on my leadership podcast, the other podcast I do. It just It just really spoke to me. Now... We also had a powerful conversation with Derwin Gray and Darren Shesky. And what I loved about this conversation is Derwin's an African-American pastor who leads a multi-ethnic church, and Darren Shesky is a white pastor who leads a multi-ethnic church. And David and I asked them about how they did that. Like, if you want more diversity, if you lead a rather homogenous church, whether that's mostly white or mostly African-American or mostly Latino, how do you actually like become more diverse. And so they both had a a chance to answer that question. I think you're going to find it fascinating for next steps. The first thing that I would say is sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, Mm -hmm. be willing 
to learn the gospel afresh. And what I mean by, by that, and I say this with humility, is oftentimes in the West, we view the gospel as simply a transaction and Jesus is a consumer product that we consume mm-hmm. versus I need to learn that he's a king with a kingdom. And in that kingdom is every nation, tribe, a tongue who's been bought by his life to reproduce his life in the world. Two, I think there needs to be a season of lament. Um, I know with George Floyd, there's been those who've gotten out and they've spoken. And I say this respectfully, if ethnic reconciliation is a hobby and not a habit, you're going to blow yourself up. Sometimes you get some people in there that have actually done this. So there needs to be a season of lament of, man, how have I missed this? And then third is you begin to leverage your influence. And what I say to my white pastor friends is if you get serious about doing a gospel-centered multi-ethnic church that's on mission with Christ, be prepared to have your heart broken because you're going to find family and friends um, who have some dark, dark thoughts. You're going to lose about 20% of your church. And on the African-American side, um, I've had people say, you know, you, you, you need to be more militant. And I'm like, where, where is, where's that in the scripture? Um, you need to, you need to be more angry. I'm like, well, no, uh, I need to be more like Christ, which is a bridge. And at times a bridge gets walked over, but I'd rather get walked over trying to love than to be angry. Right. And so those are those practical steps of learning, but it's going to cost you something, but it's worth it. Darren, before I want to hear what Darren has to say, but is it, did I hear you right? You kind of get shot by all sides. You kind of take hits from all sides. Like you'll have African-Americans who are complaining that you're not this far and white people who are saying you're too far the other way. Well, well, no. So the way it works with white people is um, just preach the gospel. And I'm like, well, you do know I have a doctorate in New Testament, right? And I'm a seminary (laughs) professor. Okay. So, but thanks. Um, there is within white conservative evangelicalism, there's this inbreeding of like America, nationalism, Jesus. And I'm like, man, with those views, Jesus wouldn't even be welcome because he's a brown skinned Jew who knows what oppression is by Gentiles. Um, so from that perspective, I'll get hit from there. And then from the black perspective, it's more like, no, man, we need to, like, it's almost like now we get to put the hammer down. And my thing is like, no, no, no. The gospel is for the oppressed and the oppressor. But understand, not every single white person is actively involved in oppressing. We are gospel people. Like, Black Lives Matter just started existing. Transformation churches existed for 10 years. Dr. King marched before Black Lives Matter. And more importantly, Jesus gave the mandate to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is a Jesus movement, y'all. Like, this is our movement. What he said. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) Darren, I'd love to know, like, just as as a white leader myself, what are some things you did to make sure that you're just not repeating at every level? Or what we've heard a lot in the dialogue over the last few months is, well, we've got an African American worship leader and a couple of staff members, so that's no. our diversity. What, yeah, what, I think it goes a lot deeper. That. 
It goes a lot deeper than that. And, yeah. and I agree yeah. with Derwin. It really does start with, you know, I was just going to say it really starts with with prayer and just going back and making sure you have a, a true calling from God to cross cultures because it's going to be messy and it's going to be hard and it's not something to go into lightly, but I wouldn't trade it. It wouldn't have it any other way. But as you, as you uh, listen to the stories of people, I think entering as a learner, um, you know, David Hesselgrave wrote about this years ago, just talking about as you plant churches or as you enter a community cross culturally, you have to enter as a listener and you have to come as a learner and learn the experiences of of what people are going through. In fact, he, he wanted to say that without the affirmation of the leaders or even people in that uh, of that culture giving you a sense of blessing and a sec- and acceptance, you'd never be effective. Hmm. So, for me to be a pastor of a of a multi ethnic church, I need to have the trust and the respect of the of many of the leaders of the black community in my in my in my city. I can't just walk in there and say, this is what I'm going to do. We don't exist in an island. I think so much of what happens, I see happen in the white church is that we'll get a vision to do something and run out like we're the only ones. And I think that this is one of those things where you have, you have to, it's built with relationships. So first of all, I, I, in the black church, every pastor has a pastor. And I think that should be across the board for everybody. Every pastor needs to have a pastor. So I have a pastor. He happens to be an African-American. And his name is John Jenkins. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Glen Arden. Um, when I came to Indianapolis, I was able to, through that, be able to introduce to other black pastors. And those pa- black pastors became my friends. And I kept showing up and celebrate, you know, their successes. And, you know, what not just what's broken, but but being there to celebrate what's right. And, you know, there's so much that's going right in the in the black church. So, most people aren't aware of that, and it's just been fun to have a front row seat to that. And so, through that, after you become, you enter as a as a as a listener, you show up as a servant, not as the one with the vision to say, "Here's what I'm going to do to change my city." I'm not white savior. I come alongside to partner with and to serve with uh, my brothers and sisters of other races. And there's a whole tone of respect and honor and a sense of we're we're here to work together and we truly partner. That I think if it wasn't for those pastors and those leaders, you know, them blessing me, them inviting me into their worlds, I wouldn't have a multi-ethnic church today. So I really am thankful for all of those, for all of their blessing and their relationships. But that just took time. And, you know, love is, love is really the key. Derwin said this, if you love people, you will, you will take the time to go do that. And love is the answer. Love is, it's the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. That's why Jesus said it's, it's love that casts out fear. And most people are very uncomfortable in cross-cultural settings. But if you have enough love to, you know, to go sit in those settings and just be there, um, you can earn the right to be heard. So we cover a lot more about racial justice and racial diversity on the podcast. We had a, a number of different episodes. And again, you can access the uh, archive for more. And all of that, of course, because in podcast and video world, that's free to use. So make sure you avail yourself of that. Uh, But one of the other emerging stories so far in 2020 is just personal health, the emotional health, the mental health of leaders. And the stats are not encouraging in, in, in that respect. And it's something I'm really concerned about as we move into 2021. And I know we're not there yet. Uh, but I'm, I'm concerned for leaders on two fronts. Number one, this is more of a disruption uh, than I think any of us wanted or hoped for. There'll be a little bit more on that with Andy Crouch coming up, by the way, 
in this episode. Uh, what he had to say is prophetic and fascinating. But I'm also really concerned about leaders' ability to endure this. Like, what if what if it's disrupted for another year? You know, how's that going to be at home? How is that going to be in your leadership? How are you going to be? How's your relationship with God going to be? And so I want to bring you a few conversations. First, a really real life, like, what's it like to be the Luscos? What's it like behind the scenes with Levi and Jenny Lusco? And so we interviewed both of them about that. And I think you'll appreciate this answer. We, we're just choosing to not gear, in, gear up in, into, the, into the mistake of longing to, to go back to life before COVID, nor are we trying to, if we can only make it to this and treating regathering like silver bullet. We've just kind of chosen to say like, this is a chance to reboot, reassess, to to jettison old systems. You know, the space shuttle couldn't make it out with everything that left the ground with. So you got to jettison stuff along the way. And I think we're trying to look at our whole ministry, everything and say, you know, in order to go where God's calling us to go, I think we kind of see glimpses um, of, of, of what our church could and would and should look like in the coming days. And we're trying to make, make sure we don't bring old paradigms along and drag them with us. So we're really enjoying it. We're being outside more we're on the tennis court a ton. She's being careful, but we're just I'm laying out. <laughs> we're, we're, we're loving uh, summer in Montana and finding beauty in, in little things like the fire pit and the ping pong table and our, our beautiful kids. And we're so excited to see God breathe something new in our church. And I think also um, with that, just for those listening, like it's messy and it's not smooth and there's raw, rough edges and even just serving and leading together in ministry, like it's messy, but if God's calling you to do it, he's going to give you the strength, the endurance, the stamina that you need to keep showing up. And I think that that's such a big thing because I think so often for me anyways, like uh, my perspective is, okay, if it's going smoothly, if um, the kids are like acting and behaving well and we're doing really great, like then that is success. But success isn't that necessarily. It's going through the hard stuff, having the hard conversations, leading messily, not knowing where we're necessarily going or uh, the kids, like it's just messy. But what I love so much is that within the mess, within the fight, there's such beauty in it and there's such flourishing in them. And that's really, I mean, my, my book was actually about, is about, is about that, the fact that like it takes the fight and the, the mess and the dirt, everything in order to live this flourishing life that God's called us to live. And so that's really, I mean, I feel like that's what we're living is it's not perfect, but it's beautiful. Our son pees in the trash can occasionally. You know? <laughs> don't know why. He's two and a half. For the record. <laughs> for the record. Uh, anyways, that's uh, good. And it's hard, but it's good. And his grace is sufficient. And I'm just thankful for that, that in our weakness, and I, I feel like I personally have felt weak a lot in these past months, mm. but his grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness. And so. And Jenny sent me a text this morning and said that the birds don't know about COVID and don't know about any of this. And that's why Jesus said, look at the birds. You know, uh, and so it's like, it's really nice to remember that there are birds flying around who don't know the trouble that's going on. They're just doing what God built them to do. And that really gives you a peace. Yeah. So a lot of you are navigating, you know, kids and, and schooling and what do you do? And, you know, everything is disrupted. And then we also sat down with Pete Scazzaro, who is really, really helping leaders find emotionally healthy, personal rhythms, discipleship, and so much more. 
And um, we asked him about what do you do when like you're grieving or your people are grieving or it's difficult. And he had something really important to say, I thought, about the fact that we don't really know how to lament. And uh, being somebody who reads through the Bible every year, that's just been my personal discipline. Right now, I just finished Jeremiah. (laughs) You know, I just finished Lamentations. And like the Bible is pretty realistic, sometimes more realistic than the church is about what we're going through. And here's what Pete had to say about helping your congregation and you process what's going on. I mean, imagine, I mean, it'd be really interesting to do a sermon series, for example, on the Psalms. And two thirds of the Psalms are laments. They preach the different types of sermons, you know, different types of thanksgiving, you know, praise, some laments, confessions, wisdom Psalms. But then ask people to invite people to write Psalms, write a Psalm of their, their experience. And you'll be surprised. I did it once at our church years ago. I think 90% of the Psalms that we receive were laments because hmm. that's where people are living. And they'll have them write it down uh, is such a gift. Uh, imagine singing some laments, which we don't do in our churches. Uh, it's just not very Western to sing laments. You know, uh, music companies aren't looking for laments. They don't sell. Uh, so we, we like to fix things. We want to, f- we, we can't, we can't fix what's happening right now. We can cooperate with it. We can surrender to it. We can let go of everything we're holding on to and clinging to. But you, you're going to try to fix this? I, I think it's going to be a miserable experience. And, and it's very likely you may not stay in this. If, if these birth pangs keep cascading of crises, uh, which you know it's happened in other places over the last 2,000 years, uh, you know, we won't be the first kingdom to fall uh, in history. We won't be the first Christians to walk through something like this either, by any means. Uh, we, it's going to be very difficult with the spirituality of, I call it Americanized spirituality, to get through this. Because this is not bigger, better, faster. And you can't fix it. And then we also had the opportunity to talk to Henry Cloud. And uh, Henry, I'm so grateful for his ministry. It's been such a life giver in um, 2020. And we asked him, you know, how do you cope with just the constant disruption, the chaos, the uncertainty? And he had some really helpful advice about finding some life-giving rhythms and life-giving things that we should be focusing on, particularly, you know, if this is going to be a sustained crisis, you've got to get into a rhythm that is sustainable. So here's Dr. Henry Cloud. What brings us life? Now, what brings one person life, the three or four things is different than, than what brings another person life. You know, for, for an introvert, they're right now in heaven and they're, they're, they're hoping to to go back. Right. But, but sometimes, you know, what people will do is they'll start to feel diminishing functioning cognitively. You're confused. You can't concentrate. You know, your head is mush, you know, emotionally, your energy level, kind of, you know, lower mood, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's really, really important for you to begin to look at, okay, the things that give me life and the things that are triggers for all of those things what, how has the crisis kind of forced me into a space where I'm no longer doing the things and actively doing the things that give me life? Because the structure of the way it used to be provided that for me. 
One of the things that we know, and I want everybody to watch out for this, is when we go into a state where we lose control, in other words, where something's affecting you that you didn't, you didn't cause, then the brain begins to go into this thing called learned helplessness. And what that means is because I can't control the pandemic, my my control impulses in my brain just begin to shut down. Well, then I won't take control of anything. And so what happens is you've gradually drifted into this really passive state and you're not doing the things even that you could do that really, really affect how you feel because the brain has just gone into a weight a sort of a waiting on normal to come back stay. So, so beginning to look at the nature and kind of connectedness that you have lost. And I, I really suggest that people try to recreate the concentric circles of what they had before the crisis. You know, if you look at Jesus, he had the bigger community that he related to. We need to be going on some bigger community things like this. You know, he had the 30 or 40 names that, that you see over and over in scripture. Then he had the, you know, the 12, and then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. And then he had John, the one he was closest to, who wrote all the abiding passages, by the way. And so I want, I want them to make their little columns and say, check every column, and I'm getting some bigger group stuff so I can normalize because the law of big numbers will normalize this thing for us. But then my smaller group, are we, am I staying in touch with them? And then the, the three and the one. And if they're really, really systematic about that, what you could do is you can go a long way towards reversing what, the, what used to do that for you. See, our the structure of our lives used to do that for us. And now we've got to do it more specifically. So hopefully it is a healthy you that moves into 2021. And we are seriously committed to that. We'll bring you more conversations around that uh, as we talk to leading experts and, and continue to track the data with that. But then let's talk about the future, okay? Because the future is going to be a lot different than any of us signed up for. And so in this segment, I want to bring you some thoughts from John Tyson, Andy Crouch, and Mark Sayers. So John Tyson, well, David and I did an interview with him, and we asked him the question, you know, at the beginning, like think back at the beginning of the pandemic, things were so different, right? Like people were praying every day, and, and, and I asked him, did we miss the moment? Like, did we, did we actually, did we miss an opportunity for God to really do something? And I, I thought his answer was fascinating. Here's John Tyson. There was something that happened universally when this started. Churches were doing 24-7 prayer change. People were getting desperate. Everybody sort of sensed, is this a, you know, beyond the theology of did God cause this or allow this, whatever people's theology was, whichever camp, whether it was like the desiring God people or the Missio Alliance people, they were all saying, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. And I, I don't think, you know, I, I'm getting ready to preach on um, a cry for repentance. And, you know, uh, Josiah's repentance was just maybe the most staggering repentance in the Bible. Hmm. And one of the things he did was he burned the bones of the, the false priest so they couldn't be dug up and memorialized in another generation. Total repentance. And, you know, I mean, it was just so, I just thought, I just don't think we got that deep. We buried hmm. the bones and we dug them back up and we're wanting to resume things as normal. And so, Gosh, so so the question I'm asking myself right now is, could America get worse 
and could God get our attention again? And the answer is, oh yeah, baby, it could. <laughs> this week, like we could face an economic moment, like all the unemployment stuff, particularly here in the States is about to run out. They're scrambling to figure out about that. Um, we have a very, very divided country in terms of politics, still tremendous amounts of it. So we could, we could have another perfect storm that leads us to a place of utter desperation before God. And that's actually what I'm praying. Lord, don't, don't, whatever you started, carry it through to completion. Let us not miss it. I think we're going to have a couple more little opportunities and if we're willing to really lean in. So again, I, I guess this is what I would say, and this is where it gets hard. People who speak like this are annoying Prophets are annoying. You don't want to hear again, ah, ah, got to go deeper, ah, need more tears. No one wants to hear that. But I think we may get to the point where people are willing to for a sustained repentance. And I don't delight in that at all, I mean, because there's so much sadness and brokenness, but I, I think there could be a couple more windows, a few more opportunities to sort of get on our faces and stay there for an extended period of time. So there is that question, and I, I would just say, yeah, hopefully it's not too late, right? Like our posture going into 2021 is going to be so important. And on that note, it's a nice segue into what Andy Crouch had to say. So uh, rather than set this up, we're actually going to include the question I asked him because there's no point repeating it. Um, but you're going to hear his answer. I think he was prophetic back in March when he and some colleagues wrote about could this be an ice age or a winter? So remember, we recorded this a few months ago, but his words are, are strangely prescient even now. So think about when the world changed. Most of us would talk that that was that week of like March 9th to 15th that all turned on a dime. On March 20th, you co-authored an article, and I want to quote at some length, because rereading this, preparing for this interview, I'm like, Wow. <laughs> The novel coronavirus is not just something for leaders to, quote, get through for a few days or weeks. Instead, we need to treat COVID-19 as an economic and cultural blizzard, winter, and beginning of a, quote, little ice age, a once-in-a-lifetime change that is likely to affect our lives and organizations for years, close quotes. So I think, Andy, that was a little bit prophetic, okay? We're like 10 days into this and you're writing about this. And five or six months later... I think leaders are still struggling with the reality that, yeah, like we talked about so far in this episode, this is actually not going away right away. Um, any idea why so many leaders are struggling with the idea that this could be a blizzard or a little ice age? It's not, or sorry, uh, more than just yeah, a blizzard a is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Yeah. Why they're still struggling with it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it speaks to the power of culture. Um, there's a lot of different ways to define culture, but, but one way to define it, I guess, is the things you don't have to think about, the things you can do without thinking. So we all share the English language. We don't have to think. We, we didn't even have a conversation at the beginning, like, what language should we have this uh, podcast in? And in <laughs> yeah, many parts of the world, you point. would. You'd be like, are we in Zulu today? Are we in Swahili or whatever? Um, and culture is all the things you can take for granted. And it's, it's incredibly cognitively efficient because I don't have to learn a whole new set, a whole new stack, we could say in computer science terms of skills and capacities. And, and, uh, it allows you to act with a sense of freedom in the world. What this crisis or more than a crisis, what this episode and change of seasons in a way is doing is it's taking away all the things that we already know how to do. 
And, and then you're left rebuilding absolutely from the ground up. Like, you know, okay, we know how to put on a service in our sanctuary. Can we just videotape that and send it to our congregation? And that works for three or four weeks. But how do we actually worship for the next maybe 12 to 18 months without being able to gather? It's not going to be a, a webcam pointed at the pulpit in the sanctuary. And, and this requires a level of flexibility and, and it imposes a cognitive cost that is really hard to pay when you're paying that in every single aspect of your life, not just your ministry, but your neighborhood, your kids' schooling, your, you know, all these things. So I think we're resistant to the idea that it's more than a, a blip because of how much would have to change if it's really true that it's sticking around. So you think some of that might be a little bit of denial, just like if we can, like what what's under that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to blame anyone for... No, no, no. First of all, I, don't, I want to blame I'm anyone. in denial about lots of things going on in my <laughs> life. So I'm, I'm like I'm like a fellow journeyer here. I'm just curious, doctor. Right. Fill no, me in. Fair enough, yeah. Uh yeah, so there is some of that, and it is also sequencing because we have to solve near near term problems first, and there's a lot of near term problems to solve. Like early on, it was, will I have toilet paper next week? And it became, where will I get a haircut? You know, like there's just think about all the things you didn't have to think about. Um, so part of it is people are just putting off reckoning with things that are too big for them to address today. Um, I think. I think also. Uh, especially in the North American context, this is an optimistic culture. Like this is like a glass one fifth full culture and, and, and leaders in particular are rewarded for being optimistic. And there's a kind of, I'm not entirely, I don't think all the results of the, the COVID episode will be negative. So it's not pessimistic to say this is going to change everything. But it, it does imply some real disruption and pain, for sure. And I think we have not been rewarded as leaders for being, I mean, Jeremiah wasn't rewarded either, right? Yeah, yeah, leaders yeah. who actually bring up the big structural generational pain that is impending to a people, like that's not generally highly rewarded ever, you know. And Jeremiah gets thrown in a pit and various other things happen to him. And no one listens to him, by the way. He's and in his own time, he's not seen as an effective leader. Four, four kings, I think, and none of them pay attention. So it's taking on a lot, and it especially has been in these first few months, to be the one who's willing to step out and say, this is actually going to be way harder and way longer and, in a sense, way worse than than you would like to think. And, and now let's imagine how God's going to be present in that. That's a really challenging leadership role. So the world has changed and you are ministering in a brand new reality. So am I. We're living in a whole new world that feels a little bit dystopian and, and it is not the predictability we were expecting. And so I wanted to finish this, this sort of recap episode, this best of episode with what Mark Sayers had to say. And Mark has had so much good content this year. I'm a, a big fan of, well, this cultural moment. Uh, they haven't done a lot on that in 2020, but He's got a Rebuilders podcast, which I found really helpful. Uh, I've interviewed him a number of times, including for Church Pulse Weekly. And he talked about two kinds of leaders when it comes to crisis and disruptive change. And I thought this would be a wonderful place to close this episode. So here is Mark Sayers. When crisis happens, um, most of us can go to a default setting of going back to what we know. Uh, Robert Quinn wrote a book called Deep Change. And in that book, he said that 
there's a different kind of leader who responds to crisis by going deep inside of them and making the profound changes, which will then expand their influence and make them this transformative leader. He was writing from a, a business perspective, not a faith perspective that I know of. But I believe that there's a Christian invitation in this moment that in the midst of a crisis where what we're used to putting our security and hope in is actually shaken, that then there's a spiritual invitation in that to actually step into the cloud um, with God. And God in the Old Testament, a theophany happens often in a cloud. On the top of the hmm. mountain of God, Moses has to leave behind the fear of the people, ascend the mountain alone, step into that dark cloud. But in the dark cloud, he steps into the hidden place, and that's where God reveals his plans. My encouragement to leaders in the midst of this, we're going to be scrambling, but also you need to step into that hidden place, walk into the cloud beyond the fear of your people, and again commune with him and let him do new things in you in this time. So I'm really hoping and praying that you are that kind of leader who sort of completely recalibrates and says, okay, all right, God, here we are. Didn't sign up for this, didn't like it, but I'm willing to go deep and I'm willing to be remade. Rather than trying to reconstruct what I used to have, I am willing to live in a new reality. And I've been reading through the Old Testament this year, and I got to tell you, it is like reading like like... It's like, is this all happening? Like the fall of Jerusalem and, you know, the slaves being uh, taken out of Egypt, but then, um, you know, running into all kinds of problems. And it's like, wow, the Bible just pops in a season of crisis like this. So I'm praying, praying for a new hope for 2021. I'm praying for leaders who have the resilience to make it through, who have a commitment to dealing with the issues of our time and uh, the pioneers who are going to be blazing forth new models. Because Laced in the midst of all this is great opportunity, incredible opportunity. If you want some more help with this, make sure you do check out the resources we have for you at Barna.com. In particular, Barna.com forward slash digital church is going to help you. It's a brand new study. I found it absolutely fascinating to see what people are thinking about the hybrid church, the future of the church. There are so many clues in that research for you as you plan in 2021. So make sure you check it out. So we will be back with some fresh episodes. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different for a while. We're going to give David some time just to, to be off and, and to be with his family and to grieve. And uh, so you're going to get a few guest hosts perhaps from time to time, some new faces from Barna bringing you the latest research. But the crisis does continue, and so does this podcast, and so does the value of your input. So if you haven't yet um, participated in one of the pastor polls that we are taking all the time, would you do that today? Just head on over to Church Pulse Weekly or BarnaAccess.com. Those are your portals to everything related to the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. I uh, want to thank you for your prayer and support. If you want to support the Kinnaman family, please head over to PrayForJill.com. And uh, I'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on Church Pulse Weekly. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.